Well, you can open up with me to John 15. We're going to keep marching along there as you're turning there. There is a scene uh, in the movie, A Christmas Story. Some of you might be able to identify with this scene. It's where uh, a group of boys are out uh, on a a snow-covered field during recess, and uh, they're standing next to a flagpole, a frozen flagpole. Uh, and, and two of the boys are seen arguing back and forth, uh, and they are uh, debating uh, whether or not uh, if they, one of them would, were to stick their tongue on the flagpole, uh, they're debating whether or not they would get stuck. And uh, one boy challenges the other, uh, who doesn't think it's possible, so okay, then I, I dare you to do it. And that uh, initial dare was declined, and then from there things escalated quickly. It became a a double dare. Uh, And then it escalated to the next level, a double dog dare. Uh, And then proper etiquette would have been to escalate it into a a triple dare, but that was bypassed and go to the highest level of a triple dog dare, at which point the one boy felt obligated to put his uh, tongue on the frozen flagpole, and he he, uh, that debate was ended. Uh, There are... There are certain passages in, in the Bible where God is daring us to trust him. And he doesn't do this with a, a triple dog dare, but with language more akin to Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And we need that kind of encouragement at times. In which God is, is challenging us, daring us to trust and obey him and then to, to watch and to experience the blessings that flow out of obedience to him. We need these kinds of, of dares because we are prone to trust in our own wisdom. We are prone to, to buy into the, the wisdom of the world. In fact, the wisdom of the world is constantly and continually beckoning uh, to us, uh, striving uh, to get us to obey it rather than obeying Christ. But God beckons to us as well. Satan uh, seeks to to beckon to us through the the world and its system. That that worldly wisdom is the anti-wisdom. It's the, the wisdom of Satan rather than the wisdom of God. It goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? When, when, when Satan doesn't initially immediately come out and say, God is lying to you and this is false. He just says, well, has God said? He, he creates questions and, and doubts. And Jesus knows the methods of Satan. And what we, what we see here in John 15 is Jesus making an appeal of his own, uh, a dare to his disciples. As we've looked through the first six verses of, of John 15 in the past couple of weeks, we've seen uh, Jesus exhorting them. The, the, the overarching command, the overarching flow of these verses is for the disciples to abide in Christ, uh, to, to remain in him. Even though he is about to, to leave and to depart from them, Christ is, is commanding them, challenging them to remain in him, to stick with what he has taught and proclaimed to them. If you read with me in, in beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine grower. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit from itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and they cast them into the fire and they are burned. And then what we're going to study this morning. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So verses seven and eight, as we study those this morning, that introductory clause, that conditional statement that if this is true, then this is going to be the result. It's the way that it's worded there in the Greek, the Greek, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. The expectation is there's Jesus is not sure whether or not they will abide. Now, there's different types of uh, clauses in the, the Greek in terms of conditions. And sometimes something is worded a particular way where I know this is what's going to happen. I'm just it's a hypothetical for the sake of argument. Uh, but this is a uh, will you abide? Will you abide in me? It's, it's likely, but it's uncertain. It's a conditional clause. And notice that Jesus, we, we've talked about abiding in him, but he gives us a further clarification of what that looks like. If you abide in, in Christ and his words abide in you. So there's, a, there's an inverse relationship uh, here. There, there's a, an inseparable uh, connection that if Christ, if you are in Christ, then his word is going to, to be in you as well. And this is a, a challenging thing in and of itself. Now, this is not merely speaking about reading the word. I think it's also uh, about memorizing, meditating and obeying the word. Now, is his word uh, ruling and reigning in your life? Uh, that, that's a part of what it looks like to be abiding in Christ. And, and this introductory clause is going to set us on uh, and set the table for the other uh, conditions and uh, commands here of what Jesus is saying to his disciples. In these two verses, having already explained the importance of why they should abide in him, Jesus is now going to explain uh, the outcomes, the, the results of what will happen if they do trust in him and abide in him. And the outcomes that Jesus mentions here are, are powerful motivators. These are the dares. If you do this, I dare you to do this. And if you, if you do this, if you abide in Christ, this is what is going to be the experience in your life. So what happens when we trust Jesus and abide in him? And what we're going to see in these two verses are, are four outcomes of abiding in Christ. And we're going to look at them individually one by one. But I want to pause and pray before we dive into these. And ask for the Lord to, to lead us and guide us. Father, you are the vine dresser. You are the one who is at work by the power of your spirit. Who has sealed us. 
for our coming salvation. Lord, we, we thank you for that and praise you for that. But we ask now that you would guide us, that you would instruct us by the power of your word and by the influence and working of your spirit. Help us to embrace these outcomes, to believe them in faith, and then ultimately to obey Christ and to abide in him all of our days. Use this time to strengthen and encourage our hearts and to draw us near to you, we pray, in the matchless name of your Son. Amen. So as we look at these four outcomes, the first one uh, is going to be seen at the end of verse 17. The beginning of verse 17 sets the table. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, uh, then this is what will take place. The first outcome is that you will see answered prayers. You will see answered prayers. And this is a similar proclamation to what Jesus said earlier in the conversation when they were back in the upper room. Now, remember, they're walking on their way either to the temple or to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when they were in the upper room in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do so that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus gives this promise of answered prayer. And again, here it's clarified that if you are abiding in him and Christ's word is abiding in you, you can ask anything and that prayer will be answered. And Jesus is able to to say that because knowing if you are abiding in him and his word is in you, then you have been transformed. And that's going to to impact and and influence the way that you pray and what you pray for uh, and how frequently you pray, all of the above. If you keep your finger here in John, we can go back to where uh, Bruce led communion from, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14 are the Apostle Paul talking about our salvation and what uh, God has done for us. In saving us and his eternal plan of salvation. Then in verse 15 to the end of the chapter, we see uh, a prayer of the Apostle Paul. So based upon what God has done, this is now the Apostle Paul. And listen to how he prays and what he is praying for the Ephesians. Verse 15, he says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints... Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him so that you, the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ. And the prayer continues from there, talking about what Jesus has done and accomplished on our behalf and how he now rules and reigns over everything. But think about what we read in terms of that prayer. Now, that is a transformed prayer. That is the Apostle Paul uh, praying without ceasing for the Ephesians, longing for them to grow more and more like Christ, for them to come to a knowledge of God and to understand the salvation that they have. And this is what our prayers ought to sound like. That's what a transformed prayer uh, looks like. 
And Jesus promises here that if we are abiding in him and his word is abiding in us, we can ask whatever we wish and he will answer. And that is a powerful, powerful promise. But it is not a promise as we discussed back in chapter 14. It's not a promise that Jesus is going to be a genie for you and do whatever you ask, right? You're like, I've been praying for wings for a long time and my prayers have not been answered. Those types of prayers are not going to be answered. Uh, as as we look, saw back uh, in that passage, uh, that it, we have to be praying, and if we are transformed, we're going to be praying according to God's uh, person, who he is, his perfections, and his purposes. What does God want for your life? Notice what was Paul praying for. Praying for, for the Ephesians to know the word of God and to begin to live that out in its uh, totality, to grow in knowledge and understanding and application, to be transformed according to the image and likeness of Christ and the salvation that they have in him. This is what takes place. If you are praying according to uh, your abiding in Christ and his word abiding in you, you're going to see your prayers answered. Do you think the Apostle Paul's prayer was answered? Absolutely. Uh, Because if you look at what takes place, uh, and Bruce mentioned the the book of Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, those were probably church plants off of the church at Ephesus. As the Apostle Paul is praying for the Ephesian church, as they are growing and built up, and his prayer is answered because it's according to the will of God, the the word of God goes forth, and those additional churches are planted, and more and more people come to know Christ in a saving way. Paul's prayers were answered. I love another story about an English Puritan preacher, Philip Henry, who had two children who were dangerously sick. And after a time of wrestling in prayer in his diary, he wrote, If the Lord will will be pleased to grant me my request this time concerning my children, I will not say, as the beggars at our door used to do, I'll never ask anything of him again. But on the contrary, he shall hear oftener from me than ever. And I will love God the better and love prayer the better as long as I live. So when we see answered prayer, because we're praying according to the will of God, what, what should that ultimately encourage us to do? To, to pray even more and to encourage our hearts even more to be praying. That is how we ought to feel every time the Lord answers a prayer. But, but you might begrudgingly say, well, I haven't seen the Lord answer my prayers. I haven't seen that. I know that can be discouraging. But I would ask you, what were you praying for? Were you praying according to God's person, his purposes, and his perfections? Or or was it for your own desires and for your own glory? How often did you pray? With what fervency did you pray? With what frequency did you pray? We are commanded to continually come to God in prayer without ceasing. But then directly the point of this passage If we're not seeing the Lord answering prayers, what should we ask and examine within our own hearts and lives? Yeah, am I abiding in Christ? And is his word abiding in me? Christ makes a promise here. He has promised to answer our prayers. And you might know that intellectually, right? You know the right answer for the test. But do you really believe that in the stillness and quietness of your heart? And I would say if we, if we believe this as we ought to, we would all be praying far more than we do. Amen? 
uh, if we truly believe that our prayers go up to God, and if they are according to his person, purposes, and perfections, then he will answer those prayers. If we believe that, we would be praying far, far more. May the Lord help us to trust this promise. It's an amazing promise. And this is the, but the first outcome of abiding in Christ. His word in us, us in him, we will be praying and we will see our prayers answered. Then there's a, a second outcome. And it comes in, in the middle of verse 8. The outcome is that you will bear much fruit. Verse 8 says, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And again, this is very similar to, to verse 5 that we studied and saw last Sunday. That there is, a, there is a promise for all of those who are connected to Christ as the true vine that you will produce something in your life. Now, there, there will be spiritual fruit that comes forth uh, from you and in you. Now, and there's a progression here in this chapter because back in chapter 15, verse 2, talks about how God is at work. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, there's the beginning point. There is spiritual fruit in your life because you're connected to Christ. You've looked to him in faith and you're united with him. You're part of the true vine. There will be some fruit. But then what is the father going to do? He's going to to prune and he's going to clean. He's going to shear off those little portions of your life that are not helpful, that are distracting you from bearing even more fruit. And when the father does that, what's going to happen? More fruit is going to be produced in your life. So it goes from bearing fruit to more fruit there in verse 2. And then in verses 5 and 8. The end goal is that we would bear not just more fruit, but much fruit. That there should be a progression in our spiritual lives as we are abiding in Christ, that we're going to uh, be transformed into his image and likeness to a greater and greater degree and bring forth more and more spiritual fruit. But I would say the the emphasis here uh, concerning what has already been said is the connection between our prayer and the production of fruit in our lives. That prayerfully abiding in Christ will lead to us bearing fruit. But I would also say the inverse is true. That prayerlessness will hinder bearing fruit in our lives. And if we are not praying, we're we're not going to be producing much fruit. I love what R.C. Sproul says concerning this. He says, prayer does change things, all kinds of things. But the most important thing it changes is us. Uh, and so our, our abiding in Christ and, and us going to him continually in prayer uh, is, is a recognition and an acknowledgement that we need help, that we are dependent upon him. Right? My praise, my all shall be in Christ alone. How is that demonstrated most obviously in our lives? But when we go to God acknowledging our humility, uh, that we are in desperate need of help and assistance, going to him and beseeching him for strength. You say prayer is the, the believer wrestling with God, pleading for, for blessing and assistance for ourselves and for others, uh, pleading for him to, to help us live the Christian life. You, you may be familiar with the story of Jacob in Genesis 32. Verses 24 to 26 says Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of dawn. Now we're not introduced to who this man is, but at the end of this little passage says that Jacob has wrestled with God. He has striven with God and with man. 
is a pre-incarnate Christ that, that Jacob has a wrestling match with. He wrestled with him until the breaking of dawn, and he saw that he had not prevailed against him, so he touched the socket of his thigh. And so the, the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him, and then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, this is Jacob speaking, I will not let go unless you bless me. Now that's what it looks like to wrestle with God in prayer. You are begging, pleading, beseeching, crying out for him to to bless you, to strengthen you, for, for him to work in your life and in the lives of others. When was the last time you prayed like that concerning the things that you are struggling with in the Christian life? When was the last time you prayed that way concerning your own walk? Or for uh, others. Honestly, this this is something that we need to to wrestle with. Have you prayed in this way? And if not, why not? Another example, we see the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 12. Is because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Speaking about his vision of heaven. Is to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and hardships for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, now what's amazing is you see the Apostle Paul growing and being transformed, number one, by his trials. Right? He, he has a thorn in the flesh. And what does that thorn in the flesh prompt him to do? To cry out to God and to pray. And the Lord uses both the trial and his prayer to bear spiritual fruit in his life. Because after this trial and after his prayer, who is, G- who is Paul more like? I gave you the answer. Come on. <sighs> He's more like Christ. He has been sanctified. He was abiding in Christ at the beginning. And he's bearing more spiritual fruit at the end of that trial. That's what we need to see. And so what would happen if each day... You began with prayer to God, crying out to him, asking him to help you battle against the temptation that so easily besets you. Well, what would happen if you were to, to pray regularly for others in your lives, for salvation, for spiritual growth? What would happen? What would, you, what would happen if you began to pray for opportunities to share the gospel with others? Then you would have opportunities to share the gospel with others, right? Well, what's that, that common saying? Be careful about praying for patience. Because if you pray for patience, what's God going to do? Give you opportunities to be impatient. Right? And then you have to exercise patience in that moment. And that, that's the way it all works. But we need to be praying. That way, if you've been praying actively against responding in anger, and then you're presented with an opportunity to respond in anger, then, then it's, what am I going to choose? Am I going to abide in Christ or am I going to abide in my flesh and have an outburst? Love what the Puritan John Owen says. He who prays as he ought 
will endeavor to live as he prays. You begin to, to pray for spiritual growth, you're going to begin to experience that spiritual growth. You're going to have to begin to act upon it as well. It's not just prayer alone. But your feet will follow your prayers in following Christ. Spiritual growth is amplified by our prayers and it is hindered by our prayerlessness. Love what J.C. Ryle says. Is what is the reason that some believers are so much brighter and holier than others? I believe the difference in 19 cases out of 20 arises from have different habits about private prayer. I believe that those who are not eminently holy pray little, and those who are eminently holy pray much. And this is the progression. If we are abiding in Christ and his word is abiding in us, what else is going to be taking place in my heart and in my life? I'm going to be praying. Now, I'm going to be seeing prayers answered. And because I'm praying according to the will of God, that's going to produce fruit in my life. These are the outcomes, and they're all intertwined. Those are the first two outcomes, and they, they both lead to and uh, culminate in a third. Seen at the beginning of verse 8. Namely, that you will glorify God. Because my Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit. So when you are abiding in Christ, the fruit that comes forth in your life, it's not intended to glorify you and proclaim your greatness. It's intended to magnify God's work in and through Christ in your life. God gets the glory for the different person that you are now from who you used to be. Amen? Uh, hey, what's, what's the difference? I, I noticed a difference since you kind of become a Christian. Tell me about that. Well, I've been trying harder. No, that's not it. The right answer is God has given me a new heart. It's transformed my mind, my affections. I no longer want to pursue my old life. I want to live for Christ who lived for me and died for me and loved me. That's the proclamation. That's what we need to see and understand. That the spiritual fruit that is brought forth as we pray and as we abide in Christ is to the glory of God. And those who abide in Christ will desire for Christ to grow ever larger in their lives. If you, if you turn back in John's gospel, we see a wonderful, wonderful example of this in John the Baptist. If you turn over to John chapter 3, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, there arose a debate between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who is the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's what it sounds like when Christ is abiding in you. You want him to get Bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's a joy to see that happening. 
Notice what, what John says here. My joy is full. Now flip over back and we're going to get to this next week. But look at verse 11 in John 15. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You see, there is a, a, a joy that comes in the Christian life of living not for our glory, but for living for Christ's glory. And why does that bring and produce so much joy? Because that's what we were created to do. We weren't created to pursue greatness in and of ourselves. We were created to glorify God and proclaim his majesty to the world. We see what it looks like to strive to abide in Christ and to glorify God by bearing spiritual fruit. We see this in the life of John the Baptist. We also see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. We talked about that in, in his prayer to the Ephesians, that he longed to see others become more like Christ. And again, that's, what it, that's bearing spiritual fruit, becoming like Jesus. Paul's kind of personal mission statement was, was found in Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. He says, Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I labor, striving according to his working, which he works in me in power. See, Paul was laboring and striving not to see to boost his own name, but to, to proclaim the name of Christ and to see others grow uh, to maturity in Christ. That's what Paul longed to see. And this is this is again the, the outflow of abiding in Jesus. You want to see more and more people abiding in Jesus. If you're seeking to glorify yourself, it's a huge indicator that you are not abiding in Christ. And we see multiple examples of this in the scripture. Simon the magician, Acts chapter 8. Now when Simon saw that the spirit had been bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the spirit. What's Simon the magician wanting? I want that power. I'd like to have that. I'll give you money for it. He's, he's not wanting to see Christ proclaimed. He's wanting to see himself proclaimed. He's wanting to, to magnify his own name. Speaking of the, the false teachers who were influencing the Galatian churches, the Apostle Paul says this in Galatians 4, 17. He says, They zealously seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will zealously seek them. Now, that's what false teachers long to do. They long to get people to attach to them and then follow them rather than following Christ. But listen to the Apostle Paul's desire two verses after that in Galatians four nineteen, is my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Think about those two contrasting visions. False teachers want people to follow them. The Apostle Paul wants people to be formed into the image and likeness of Christ. That's the, that's the desire. And again, that's, that's the, the outcome, the result of abiding and praying. God is glorified. And when we are abiding in Christ, leading to bearing fruit for the glory of God, we are in essence living exactly the way that Christ lived. Because that's the story of his entire ministry here upon the earth. He did nothing for himself, but all for the glory of God, obeying God perfectly, seeking to magnify the Father. 
And abiding in Christ will lead you to be praying for God to be glorified in any and every circumstance. Right? If, if we are truly abiding, then our desires, whatever trial may come, even if it's a thorn in the flesh, what's our prayer going to be? God, be glorified and magnified in this. This is so hard, Lord. Give me strength to walk through this. I don't know if I can, but I know that you're with me. And your strength is perfected in my weakness. Abiding in Christ will also lead you not only to pray for the glory of God, but then to live for the glory of God in all that you do. Remember that that praying leads to living. Again, that John Owen quote again, He who prays as he ought will endeavor to live as he prays. So we see these, these three outcomes of abiding in Christ. You'll see prayers answered. You will bear much fruit. You will glorify God. And then there's a, a last outcome at the end of verse 8. Because my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, the, the fruit of believers bears a, a twofold purpose here. Number one, the fruit that we bear serves to glorify God. But, but the second purpose that it serves is to give us assurance. This is the fourth outcome that you will have Assurance of salvation if you are abiding in Christ. If there is fruit in our life, then it shows that we are attached to the true vine. Remember, what does it say in verse 5? Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. That's an exact number. You can do exactly nothing apart from Him. You must be connected to Him if you're going to bear any spiritual fruit. James 2, verses 17 and 18 Even so, faith, if it has no works, and when you hear works here in James, think fruit. Even so, faith, if it has no fruit, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Or I will show you my faith by my fruit. Let me show you what has faith in Christ has produced in my life. And so the presence of spiritual fruit in your life is encouragement. It is significant. It means something. And it is possible for us to have the assurance of our salvation. This is is a really big deal. You're like, what's so big about this? Flash backwards 500 years during the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church hated the fact that the Protestant reformers were proclaiming a gospel that gave people certainty of whether or not they were actually saved. Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, who lived uh, in in the the late 1500s, early 1600s, went so far as to write this. The principal heresy of Protestants is that saints may obtain to a certain assurance of their gracious and pardoned state before God. Roman Catholic Cardinal says that is the, the biggest heresy of the Protestant Reformation, that they can give people assurance and they can say definitively, you have been saved. You are in Christ. And the reason that was such a a big deal is because the Roman Catholic Church had taught that no one could have any assurance of salvation. And that theology gave them power because it kept people dependent upon the Roman Catholic Church. Right? If you are putting people on a hamster wheel, saying that you must earn your salvation by doing these things, then it's to your advantage to keep people on that hamster wheel. And that hamster wheel is you do what I say. Obey the Pope. 
buy indulgences, make uh, trips to, to Rome and to visit other relics, do all of these things in order to obtain your salvation. It's a works-based system of spiritual merit. And under that system, you could never be sure if you had done enough. And that's always what happens. If you put works into the equation of I have a little bit of faith and then my works, I'm going to trust in those. If the works is a part of the equation, the question always looms, have I done enough? And the Roman Catholic Church didn't like what the Protestant reformers were teaching from the scriptures and proclaiming the true gospel that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and that you can have assurance of your salvation if there is fruit in your life. And assurance of salvation is possible. We need to, to understand that. But there is also the reality that we can be falsely assured of our salvation. If you turn over with me to, to Matthew chapter 7. As Jesus is winding down the Sermon on the Mount, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So there are going to be people who have a false assurance of their own salvation. This is why the Apostle Paul commanded in 2 Corinthians 13.5. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed... You fail the test. See, there can be assurance, but there can also be false assurance. So then that brings us back to square one, right? How do I know that I am in Christ? How do I know that I am attached to the true vine? Where should we look for assurance? Well, let me, let me tell you where we should not look. First and foremost, we, we shouldn't look, uh, and some people do this, some people find or uh, assure themselves based upon what they have not done. What, what do you mean? Well, uh, some people say, well, I'm, I'm assured that I'm going to go to heaven because I'm generally a good person. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. Right? They're, they're finding their assurance that they haven't committed some tremendously grievous sin. Right? And they say, well, God's going to let me in because I haven't really, really, really messed up. Uh, but, but they have a wrong accounting and understanding of what sin is. And yes, they're focused upon sins of commission, right? They're emphasizing, well, I haven't done this and I haven't done this, but they're completely forgetting a sin of omission, that they have not honored and worshiped the God who has created them, who's given them life and breath and everything. And Romans 1 says that we are all condemned because we don't honor God as we ought to. Don't go down that road. Give yourself false assurance by saying, I have not done anything tremendously bad. We all have. We are all standing condemned before a holy God. Some people give themselves false assurance based upon what they have not done. Some people give themselves false assurance based upon what they have done. 
Uh, and they look to something that they have done uh, in the past. And it may be praying a prayer or walking an aisle or being baptized or being involved in church. And all of those things are good, but they do not save anyone. They do not uh, transform your heart. Only the Spirit's work of regeneration can do that. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So don't look to things that you have done to give yourself assurance. Some others give themselves assurance based upon who their parents are or based upon something that their parents have done. And we've seen this in John's gospel. John chapter 8. Uh, the, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, Jesus is, is talking with them and debating them. And they say, we're Abraham's children. We're connected to him. We have eternal life. We're in the family. Jesus says, oh, you're in the family, but it's not the family that you think you're in. He doesn't point to them being Abraham's children. He points to them as being the children of Satan. He says, you are of your father, the devil. You are doing his work. Rebelling against God. So that's where we ought not to seek assurance of our salvation. And what we have not done and what we have done or what others uh, may have done. So where is assurance to be found? The assurance of salvation begins with faith in Christ. If you have believed in him, then there's the possibility of gaining assurance. But if you have not believed in him, then the only thing that you are assured of is judgment. We saw that in verse 6. Immediately prior to this, unless you are abiding in Christ, you are one of those branches that is cut cut off and cast into the fire to be burned up. Assurance of salvation begins with faith in Christ. It is never separate from it. Have you trusted in the words and works of Jesus? And what has Jesus proclaimed about us and salvation? Well, we are all sinners. Sinners. We have rebelled against a holy God, and we will stand in front of that holy God for judgment. But Christ came and lived and died to save us. Do you trust in that and trust in that alone? Have you acknowledged that to be true? Have you received that in your heart, and now are you now resting in that? That is what we are called to do. And if you haven't done that, you need to. You need to do that. Don't wait another day. Today is the day of salvation. And if you have done that, then if you have looked to Christ in faith, then you can begin to examine yourself. Then you can begin to look for fruit in your life. But don't look for fruit if you've never trusted in Christ. Guess what? You won't find any. As you examine your own life and, and you wrestle with, is there the fruit of the Spirit's work in my heart and in my life? Begin to ask things, questions like, is, has there been a transformation of my affections? Is there a growing obedience to Christ? Is there a growing likeness to Christ? Do I have a growing love for others? That's going to be the, the next section in John chapter 15. That Again, our love for others is going to be one of the, the greatest demonstrations that we are connected to the true vine. Do you regularly engage in in prayer, in evangelism, in reading the word? Are those drudgeries or are those joys? If you're abiding in Christ, it is a joy to follow and to obey him. 
And if you are looking at your life and you're not seeing any of those things, if you're seeing an absence of fruit, you should wrestle with whether or not you have genuinely and truly looked to Jesus in faith. Maybe you have acknowledged the gospel, but you haven't truly received it in faith. And you're definitely not resting in it. And along those same lines, an inconsistent walk raises the most questions concerning our salvation. So if, if abiding in Christ bears fruit, and that's the greatest assurance, an inconsistent walk is going to, to lead to more and more questions about who we are connected to. Are we connected to Christ or not? And if you're currently struggling in your walk, doesn't mean that you're not connected to him, but it means that you need to obey the command of verse 4, where Jesus says, abide in me. That's what you need to, to focus upon. And if you're, you're wrestling with the assurance of your salvation, we would love to, to talk to you. If you have doubts, questions, uncertainties, we are here to, to help come alongside you and to point you to God's word. Morning, we've, we've heard these four outcomes of abiding in Christ, laid out by Christ himself, that you will see answered prayers, that you will bear much fruit, that you will glorify God, and that you will have the assurance of your salvation. I'll close with this uh, quote from Thomas Watson, speaking on this very topic of assurance. It says, We know the kingdom of grace has been set up in our hearts by the change wrought in the soul. There is a new nature, light in the mind, order in the affections, a pliable will, and tenderness in the conscience. If there is no change of heart, there is no sign of grace. God's children desire God. Like the beating of the pulse indicates life. Saints love him not only for what he is, but for not only for what he has, but for what he is. Not only for his rewards, but for his holiness. Hypocrites may desire him for his jewels, but not for his beauty. A believer cannot be satisfied without God. Let the world heap her honors and riches. It will not satisfy. No flower will satisfy the thirsty. The Christian says, I must have Christ, grace, and heaven, though I take it by storm. We desire Christ more than the world and more than heaven itself. Whom have I in heaven but you? Heaven itself would not satisfy without Christ. He is the diamond in the ring. If God were to say, I will put you into heaven, but I will hide my face from you, that would not satisfy. A little of God will not satisfy. The pious desires still more, and a drop of water is not enough, enough for thirsty travelers. Amen? If you are in Christ, you will want more of Christ. And the outcome of abiding in him will be evident in your life. And again, if you have questions, concerns about that, I would love to talk to you this morning. Salvation is offered freely in Christ. And in Christ, there is an assurance, an absolute assurance of where you will be able to spend eternity. If you want to experience that, we would love to talk more with you. If you have that assurance of your salvation, we can rejoice in it today and every day. Amen. We're off of the hamster wheel and we are resting truly and completely in the grace of God.